Thank you, Brother Brian and Marilyn and Malcolm. And if we'll turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 once again, we want to pick up with these thoughts we're looking at, the great privilege it is to know the Lord as Savior. And we're titling this series, So Great a Salvation. So Great a Salvation. And we began this morning with the thought, and just to pick up where we were, God has spoken. God has spoken. He's spoken in the Old Testament through the prophets over a period of 2,000 years. Spanning back from the time of Job and Abraham all the way up to the time of Malachi. Then we have the 400 silent years as we refer to them. And then John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, comes on the scene. He's part of the Old Testament era. But then the Lord did something even more wonderful. If that wasn't wonderful enough, for God in heaven to be interested in our individual souls, in our individual welfare, to, to encourage us in a world of suffering that He knows about. He knows the ravages that sin has brought into this world and in this universe. It's His universe. It's contaminated His universe. He didn't plan for it to be that way. He didn't want it to be that way. But it's happened. But then He sent His Son. His only begotten Son. Now we want to look tonight at what we see in chapter 1 about His Son. But before we do, just a couple of admonition verses from Hebrews to kind of Keep us focused. And the first one we looked at in that first warning passage in chapter 2, 1 through 4, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Why? Lest we drift. Lest we drift away. See, there's no neutral gear in the Christian life. Most of your vehicles out in the parking lot, you probably have a neutral gear, right? And, and you can be moving along in, in the drive gear or in reverse gear and put it to neutral and you're still moving along in the direction you intended unless you hit the brake pedal, right? But in the Christian life, it's not like that. If we're not progressing and growing, we're regressing. There's no neutral ground. There's no plateau. You can't just come to a certain place in your growth and say, wow, this has been hard. I'm kind of tired. I'm just going to coast for a while. Going to just kind of go along on the grace I've earned up to now. Earned. Already a bad concept, right? But people think like that. And what they're doing when they go into neutral is they begin to backslide. And they move into this, you know, erosion occurs over a long period of time. And at first, it's almost totally unnoticed, isn't it? I can take you out to places in West Texas. Maybe you've seen them on the TV the last few years where the erosion, the hill looked perfectly normal before the drought. But now there are deep cuts and what happened? Erosion took place. And it's a very serious matter to God. Now we heard this morning and tonight about many, not all, but many of the 
ministries that the Lord has brought you Christians here at Boulevard into. It's a privilege. Even one ministry for him is a privilege. But multiple ministries to serve him and touch lives and testify to the gospel. And, and I would say to you, it's not enough. Do more. Based on the writer of the Hebrews. That's what he would say. He would say, give more diligent earnest heed. Don't coast. Don't be satisfied with mediocrity. Take advantage of the gifts and the encouragement and the grace the Lord and the privilege the Lord has given to us. That's the message He's trying to communicate to these dear Hebrew Christians. Another admonition verse over in chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you... You see, we might, we might think, well... Brother Wheeler, we, we appreciate... I know you're probably thinking of brother or sister so-and-so in the meeting when you gave these admonition verses, right? You're not talking about me. You must be talking about brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. No. Any of you, he says, including me, any of us is capable of drifting, of coasting, of not taking seriously... The privileges that have been granted to us. So he says, beware, brethren. Now, who, who he, he titles them brethren. They're believers. It's a mixed group, right? It's a mixed multitude. It's, it's not a church. It's, it's a nation group. Hebrew Christians that he addresses here. It's not the church in Corinth or the church in Thessalonica. So we know there's a mixture of believers and unbelievers and believers at various stages in their growth in this group. And he's addressing all of them. But he says, Brethren, lest there be in any of you, what? An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now that unbelief and departure can happen in a relative sense or it can happen in a permanent sense. Right? It can happen in a relative sense in where a genuine born-again Christian can drift away and fall out of fellowship with the Lord and His people and become unproductive and be totally vulnerable to Satan because their protection's gone and they don't know it. The hedge is gone and they don't know it. That's what's so frightening for them. We see that when we, those of us who understand the working of the Lord, but at the time when they fall into that position, they don't realize it, you see? And that's why we pray for them, we intercede for them, we go after them, we try to awaken them, right? And pray the Lord would awaken them. But then there's the, there's the permanent sense. That would be the Judas Iscariot example that he talks about in chapter 6. There does come a point of no return for someone who understands the gospel. Right? They have to understand. They have to have heard it and understood it and repelled it. Think of Judas Iscariot under the teaching of the Lord Himself physically for three years. Three years of that three and a half year ministry, very likely, or at least two and a half of those years, Judas was with them. Judas went out when they went up by twos and did miracles. So just because you see a miracle worker, that doesn't mean he's of the Lord. Judas did miracles. So we're not impressed by signs and wonders. The signs and wonders movement is wrong. When they came out in California in 1984, John 
Wimber and Jackie Deere and that church growth movement and the Vineyard Church, and they said, unless you see signs and wonders in your church, you're not really born again. And if you, unless you see them in your own life, you're not really born again. Is that what the Bible teaches? What does Christ say to those who seek a sign? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Hebrews says, chapter 11, verse 6, it's impossible to please God without what? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that we, and in chapter 5, we live by faith and not by sight. So to request or require of God signs and wonders is to live by sight and not by faith. That's not our position in this dispensation in the church in which we live today. So he says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. We could camp out on just these phrases in these verses, couldn't we? And spend a whole message on them. You know how utterly deceitful sin is in your heart and mine? What does Jeremiah say about it? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. In fact, it's so wicked you can't even know. You can't even plumb the depths of it. Why do you even want to try? You say, well, he's talking about somebody that must be in prison for murder or some bad rapist. No, he's talking about you and me and especially religious people. The Pharisees. So beware, he says. You have an enemy inside of you. Your old nature. And it is constantly, not just part of the time, it's constantly opposed to the things of God. I remember coming to this realization as a young Christian. I, you know, I mean, I was brought up with secular humanism in and, and school, in and high school, and I, I thought, no, that. <laughs> There's got to be a little bit of good in me. I mean, look at all the things that man does in, in, in the world. And Well, what are you going to believe? The Bible? Or what you observe? Well, my observations ultimately going to, I'm going to submit to the Word of God. I had to come to that place, and you maybe haven't come to that place yet. And we give you room for that. We pray you'll work through these passages on your own before the Lord and see it. I'm convinced the heart of man is desperately wicked. Not only am I aware of it now by the Word of God, but I've been illuminated by the Holy Spirit to see it in my own heart and the hearts of other Christians and certainly in the world in which we live. The moral decline and decay is accelerating at a rake and we are like that frog in the boiling water. We have got, become desensitized to it in many ways. We, we've gotten used to it so that... like. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah, they don't even blush anymore. They see these things that 50 years ago people blushed about. My grandparents blushed about. My parents did, but we don't blush. That means we become desensitized. That's an indicator of the weakness of our conscience that we talked about this morning, right? We want to sharpen that conscience. 
Make it more sensitive to good and to evil. And that comes from spending time in the Word of God, see. So he says in chapter 4, in verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. So some of the Christians had entered, and some of the other people meeting with these Hebrew Christians had not entered. They hadn't believed. They were right on the threshold, but they just weren't sure whether they wanted to trust in Christ or not. They understood they were sinners. They understood the Lord died on the cross for their sin. They understood maybe even that God's only provision for salvation was in that cross and faith in Him. But they couldn't make that final step of belief. And you and I know people like that. That's part of the people we witness to. That's part of the people we share the gospel with. He says... Let us therefore be diligent to enter, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Lest anyone fall away. And of course the example of disobedience, he's talking about that generation in the wilderness that came right up to the promised land and decided they wouldn't go. The whole reason they were saved. That brings another truth out too. Do you realize that your salvation and mine wasn't just to buy a fire insurance certificate for you and me? It was. It includes that, thankfully. But that wasn't the main purpose. You realize the main purpose was for the glory of God and that our salvation only began at the conversion. It didn't end there. How many times do I hear on Christian radio and some of these brethren I know and I... And I've tried to talk to him. Don't try to reduce the gospel to well, all you got to do is believe, and that's it. And and there's nothing else. Just believe. Well, yes, just believe, and then go on and live the Christian life. That's the gospel, isn't it? Because you can just believe in sort of an intellectual assent, in agreement with it, and then not change your life, and that's not true conversion. That's just self-deception. And there's a load of that kind of self-deception in our country today. People just being religious and going through the motions. And that's why I said this morning, second, third, fourth generation Christians are more vulnerable. Now, that, that isn't to say that, that, well, then I'm not going to teach my kids the Bible then. <laughs> I'm not going to bring them to VBS then. No, no, no. That, that's not to say that. We're going to make every opportunity available and keep praying for them from the time... I'd be praying for them while they were in the womb. I tell people that have... Start praying then. That's not to say that, but it's just inevitable in our world that continued exposure to something causes us to cherish it less. Even something as treasured and wonderful as our Lord Jesus. You say, how can that be? Because of the deceitfulness of sin in our hearts. And how we could... Come to the point of sometimes saying, you know, I'm just tired of living this Christian life. I'm tired of hearing this gospel. Oh, that's dangerous. That's what he's saying. That's dangerous. Be diligent to always be growing in the Christian life. Albert McShane said it in his commentary in First and Second Samuel, growth, ongoing Christian growth 
is the best protection, the best antidote to deception and error. Well, that's almost too obvious to even quote, but it, he had a great way of putting pithy statements in just a few words. That's the best protection against error is to be growing. When we're not growing, we're vulnerable, see. Yeah, that's why he says in chapter 5 then, he said, of whom the Lord Jesus, verse 11, we have much to say. And, and you almost wonder if he held back. Brother, did you mean to give us 20 chapters instead of 13 in this letter? I want all 20 of them. You had to hold back. Why? Well, we had much to say about the Lord Jesus, but, and it was hard to explain it since you have become dull of hearing. You're tired of hearing about Him. Wow. And that's why awareness of this danger is so important. And we wouldn't... I mean, Hebrews brings this out more strongly than probably any other New Testament letter. They all do, to some extent. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you become need of milk and not solid food. Does that not imply growth? Right? Milk and solid food? If we had a Friday night youth group meeting, you know, they order some pizza and everybody's excited, and one of the brothers says, yeah, well, you know, hold on, can you put my mommy's milk bottle in the microwave and warm it for me? I'll have that instead of the pizza. And right away we, we, we chuckle and say, yeah, yeah, that. But we don't see the link to the spiritual. Physically, that look, that sounds ridiculous. In fact, we'd say, brother, what's wrong with you? <laughs> we, need to, we need to get. But in the spiritual realm, somebody does that, stays on milk for 20 or 30 years as a Christian, and, and we're, we say, well, that's okay. All you got to do is believe. See? We're missing something. When we respond that way, when we just say, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. Not okay to the Lord. It's not okay to shepherds that are concerned about souls and their growth, right? It's not okay. It's never okay to coast. And then he talks about the conscience. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of God, the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. For solid food belongs to those who, note this, are full age or mature in the Christian life. That is, those who by reason of what? When we memorize the Scriptures, when we ask the children to memorize the Scriptures, we're not just putting on a show. We're not just entertaining you. That isn't the goal, right? The goal is to hide the Word in their heart, like Brother quoted that this morning, that they might not what? Sin against God. You mean those precious little souls could sin against God? Yes. And we recognize the urgency of it. And he says, so by reason of use, that is, use of the Word of God in applying the Scriptures to specific life situations. That's what Christian maturity is. It's wonderful to be able to quote the first chapter of John, but can you apply it to various things in the Christian life? Because that's what Hebrews is saying. We want to bring it to that level of application to concrete, specific areas that help us and help people we share the gospel with. 
Somebody comes to you with a particular addiction or a particular problem at work. Have you got a scripture for them? A specific scripture, not just, well, I'll give you John 3.16. That's a blanket one, right? That works in all situations, and that's, that's better than nothing, right? It's the Word of God. But if you can give specific scripture to that particular area, that's where they will get the victory. Because by reason of use, they found their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. See, That's Christian maturity according to the Bible. And then lastly, over in chapter 12, I'm not looking at all of them, I'm just picking a few of them. But in chapter 12, his fifth and last section on exhortation, beginning in verse 25, see that, I mean, after the ones we've already read, we're already a little uncomfortable. And he's going to give us another one. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. He began in chapter 1, God has spoken. He says, see to it, you don't refuse him. Whoa! That evil heart of unbelief can refuse God speaking to us in our hearts? Sure can. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. This is serious, isn't it? And so while we rejoice in the Christian life and while we love the fellowship of coming together and encouraging one another, beloved, especially in the days we're living in, don't coast. As I say that to each one of us, I say that to myself as well. Be careful. Be alert. Be diligent. The devil... Your adversary strolls about like a roaring lion. And what is he trying to do? Get us off track. Devour. So we come back then to chapter 1. And, and we, we see the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read these passages in chapter 1, declaring, the glory of Christ. Each time we must remind ourselves if we don't automatically, this is the person who died for me. This is the person as glorious as this who gave himself for me. Romans 5.8 While I was yet a sinner, this person did this for me. If that doesn't encourage your self-esteem, nothing is going to. Self-esteem, we hear so much about today. But for those of us who are believers, yes, we need to have an understanding of our own personal significance. But our significance as believers is rooted in who we are in Christ. Not in anything in ourselves anymore. We used to try to put it in our abilities in sports, our abilities in school, in the intellect, our abilities at work, our abilities in motherhood, or whatever it is. But now we put our significance in Christ. It's because I'm united to Him. And there isn't any more significance higher than that. And our security as well. So he says in chapter 1, God has, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, 
has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And then, you see the comma, whom begins a series, a list of seven declarations of the identity of this person, the Son. And the first one is, whom God has appointed, what's the word? Heir of how much? Of heaven? Of earth? Of all. He is heir of all. And that's why he uses the word firstborn later on here in the chapter, prototokos. Those in the first century understood that in the Hebrew sense of the word and in the Greek sense of prototokos, firstborn meant heir. That's what it meant. It did not mean what some cults like to go to today and say, you see, he was just a creature. He was the highest of the creatures, but he was the firstborn of the creatures. Not so. And we need to be rooted and grounded in that because we're surrounded by these kind of heretical ideas. And we're going to be more surrounded by Him. Beloved, I believe that in these last days coming to the rapture, we are going to be like the first century church which eventually had to meet secretly. And we may get to that point in our lifetime. Franklin Graham said it a couple of years ago, and he's my generation. Born in 51. So my generation, our generation, those of us in that age group. He said... I believe that in this country we will see the day in my lifetime, Franklin said, when gospel, true gospel preaching will be considered by our government to be hate speech. And you know the laws they've already tried to put against what they call hate speech, but they define hate speech differently than what God defines it. Sure, we're against hate speech. Sure, we're against people that that speak evil of anyone. The Bible's clear about that. But the gospel's not hate speech. And when the gospel says that someone is a wicked sinner, see, the world doesn't, they say, well, that's hate speech. You're, you're tearing down my self-esteem when you say that. Right? Isn't that what they tell you when you share the gospel with them at work? Or at school? It's not hate speech, it's love speech. Because you've got to get lost before you can get saved. You've got to understand you're a sinner before you're going to look for a Savior. So if we leave out the Savior part of it, then it, we might be able to agree with their argument that it's hate speech. Don't forget to include the love part of it. But that's part of the Gospel, isn't it? He is heir of all things. And did He, did he put out some money and buy that, that position of being heir? Is that how the Lord got it? According to this verse? Did did he climb up the corporate ladder? Stepped on everybody getting up there. I'm going to get to the top. I'm going to be the heir. Is, is that how he got it? Did he get the best grades in school and, and got to be valedictorian or assuming a lot of whatevers and, and get up to the front and, and say, I'm the head of the class. I'm the heir. No. God appointed him. God made a decree. According to the, the wording in Psalm 2, God says, I've made a decree. Here's my son. 
He's going to be king. He's going to be the rightful heir. And if you really know him and you know how glorious he is, would you want anybody else? I don't. I don't want anybody else in that position. I want him because he never makes bad decisions. He never manipulates. He never abuses. He never tricks anybody. Everybody else that's ever been in a position of governmental control, that's what we've seen, haven't we? Alas. So much of it. That's the first thing. Then secondly, through whom He's made the world. Which is consistent with what we read in Colossians 1 and in John 1 and in other places. He's the Creator. He made everything that exists. Can you imagine when He was on that cross, the thorns our brother was wonderfully reminding us about this morning. He made them. The wood of that cross, He made it. The nails came from steel that came from mining of ore out of the ground that He made. He made the hands that nailed Him to the cross. He made everything. He's wonderful, isn't He? He hasn't even gotten to the Redeemer part. Are you satisfied with Him yet? You know, I, I talk to people and they say, well... I'd be more satisfied with God if He did da-da-da-da-da. And they give out their list. We have to just come to the place of submitting to what the Word says and believing. Through whom He made the worlds. And then next, who being the brightness of God's glory. That is, He is the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle and in the temple of old, which they, the Israelites, recognized was the glory of God in their presence, perfect holiness. He is the glory of God. Gaze at Him sometime. Look at His characteristics in the Gospels. Look at how He's described in the book of Revelation and reflect upon it just spend the whole day just reflecting on some of those verses. That's your Redeemer. That's your loving Savior. That's the one who died for you and for me. But not only that, He is the express image of God's person. The Greek word character, we get character from it. Character is the essential being of a person, right? We talk about someone's character. His, his character is God's character. He is God in a human body. You say, but I picture God, this massive expanse as God, and I'm told that He's omnipresence and He's spirit and everything, and yet He's in, confined to a body too. I can't. That's okay. <laughs> Our minds have limitations in that. But we can still glory in what the Word says, can't we? I don't know, even on our glorified bodies, if we'll really get our arms around this one. But I'm, I'm still happy with Him. I'm happy with what it says about Him. You know, I still try to imagine in my mind's eye that out, outside the Mount Tabor area, there in outside the Valley of Jezreel, the city of Nain, 
They're walking in a funeral procession, and here he comes into his entourage, walking towards the casket, and the dear widow there with her son in the casket, and try to picture what that scene looked like. What was the expression on his face? When he walked up and he said, hold it, and he touched him. And he lived again. And the widow who was wondering what she was going to do now, she couldn't go out and get a job in first century Middle East back then. And if she wasn't in good order with the Pharisees and Sadducees, she wouldn't have gotten help from the temple either. The treasuries and storehouses of the temple. But the Lord restored her son. And, he says, upholding all things by the word of His power. You realize that the, the next breath you're about to take Hold your breath for a second. And think about the next breath you're about to take. It's being sustained by Jesus Christ. The law of gravity. The law of buoyancy. Talking to Brother Cassidy about being out in the ocean there. You trust in that law of buoyancy, don't you, Brother? Otherwise, a lot of what you do wouldn't work. And you could be imperiled. Jesus Christ sustains all those things. He has sustains, upholds by what? By like Atlas holding up the earth in the Greek mythology? With sort of a disinterest in the whole thing? No. By just the word of His power. His powerful word. He just speaks it. Like He told that storm. Be still. Like Bart Millard, Mercy Me, said, He who calmed the raging sea has calmed the rushing storm of anger in me. No one else can do that. But not only that. Are you getting the idea that this brother is in love with the Lord Jesus? He's just building one thing on top of the other, isn't he? He says... When he had, by Michael the archangel, purged our sins. Is that what it says? You mean he didn't, that awful work of the cross, and all the suffering, he could have delegated that. Couldn't he? With everything else that's been said about him, he could have delegated that to someone else. And it, in one sense, I mean, that was what His holiness might direct Him to do, but His love and compassion directed Him. He said, no, I'll go. That's what He'll say in chapter 10, right? Quoting from Psalm 40, Lo, in the volume of the book, it's written of me, I have come to do Thy will. I delight in doing Your will, Lord. He'll tell us in chapter 12, it was for the joy that was set before Him that He went to the cross. You know what that joy is? You and me. People. That's what the joy was that motivated Him to do it. He couldn't wait to save you and me. That's our Lord and Savior. Isn't He awesome? Isn't He wonderful? And then the seventh one, after he purged our sins, what did he do? 
He sat down at the right hand. No, no, no. Wait a minute. The majesty on high. You're talking about the highest throne of the universe here. You're talking about the throne of God. He didn't sit there. Yes, he did. Huh. He ascended. They saw him rise bodily on the Mount of Olives. And he went to the third heaven. Paul's been there. Told us about it. Heard things he couldn't even put in writing. Saw things he couldn't even describe. It was so wonderful. And I, now that's a near death experience I'll go with because it's in the Bible. The rest of NDE, sorry. You know, human imagination can invent a lot of things. I'll just stick with the scriptures if you don't mind. Paul's been there. The Lord's been there. That's the only two we know about that have told, told us anything about it. Oh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which means he's in the highest place of authority, power, and ability now to help. You see? If you're convinced in your own heart that he's compassionate and that he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities and that he wants to help you, that's, that's a big step, right? To come to that place. But we know a lot of people that can empathize with us in our weaknesses and problems and trials, right? And we appreciate their empathy, but they can't do anything more than that if they're people. <laughs> they, they can empathize with us, but they can't give us any ability to cope. He can! Grace to help in time of need. Supernatural enablement to endure anything, anything, and to overcome any addiction, trial, Difficulty in our lives. He can do it. And then he moves in verse 5. After verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance, since he's the heir, obtained a more excellent name than they, the first of the more excellence we read about in this book, and he's going to then explain that and validate it from the Old Testament. Seven quotations from the Old Testament. And some of these quotations I would go to immediately. Like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And he brackets the seven with those two quotations. Those are the, the strongest of the Messianic Psalms we have. By the way, you notice they're in the book of Psalms. Most of these quotations are from the book of Psalms. Well, Psalms comes from Tehillim, it means praises. Wouldn't you expect that the book of praises would tell us praises about Him? So it shouldn't surprise us. But some of these statements are amazing. We only have a few minutes. To which of the angels did He ever say? Now I told you this morning why He's bringing up angels here. Because God ministered the Old Covenant through the means of angels. Chapter 2 tells us that. We validate that from Galatians and Acts chapter 7. Right? And so they knew that if God is speaking, He's speaking through angels. And now we say no, but he's, now He's speaking through His Son. And His Son is greater because to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son. Today I have begotten you. That's in that Psalm 2 when He says, I've declared the decree. You are my king, and you are going to sit on my holy hill of Zion. Now, the president of Iran doesn't think that's going to happen. 
He wants that holy hill of Zion pushed into the Mediterranean Sea. But God says it's going to happen. Who are you going to believe? Who am I going to believe? You can see the world opposition to Psalm 2. The nations, the writer says, why are the nations raging against God like this? Why are they refusing to submit to God's purposes and plans? Why do many, even in Christendom, want to say, well, no, that's not a literal statement in Psalm 2, and he's not going to reign from Jerusalem? When the Bible says in Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and Isaiah, and Psalm 2, and throughout many other Psalms, that that's God's plan. It's just satanic opposition to the purposes of God. And that's all it is. But then he says, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now I would encourage you, if you're in the midst of some other studies and your family devotions and things, Right now, work through those and find a segment where you can work this in. But it is a powerfully helpful study to go through and look at every one of these quotations here in chapter 1 in their context. So to read and study all of Psalm 2 in these two verses, or this verse, these two statements, right out of the psalm, and it becomes even more powerful to our souls. This second one, some of you recognize, well, if you're looking at your margin of the Bible, you already know. But hopefully you recognize right away that this is the Davidic covenant, isn't it? And that tells us what chapter? What book? 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. And David knew this. David wrote about Messiah. Now, the first seven declarations in the first three verses referred to him up to the time of His first advent, right? Because they lead up to the cross, purging sins, and then the ascension. These second seven all deal with His second coming. They all deal with Him reigning and ruling on the earth as King. And certainly this one here does, as well as Psalm 2. But then He says, but when He again brings the firstborn into the world, and that again could again be referring to the second advent, but, the, but all of the quotations do anyway. He says, God says, let all the angels of God worship Him. All the angels of God. You think the angels need to be told to do that? Let all the angels... Now that's a quote some of your notes may say from... Uh, a verse in Deuteronomy 32, which was in the Septuagint, but not in the Masoretic text. And that may be true. I kind of prefer the Psalm 97, verse 7 quotation. Either one of them. Deuteronomy 32, the blessings of Moses deal with the second coming, where he, at the end of Deuteronomy 32, that's certainly the reference there. But Psalm 97, you know how Psalm 97 starts? Let the Lord reign. God reigns and the whole psalm is talking about the wonder when he reigns on earth and all the earth will be worshiping him and rejoicing has that happened is that happening today in the church no it's not going to happen till the lord comes back and sets up his kingdom and beloved then it will happen because psalm 2 tells us he'll rule with a rod of iron and everybody will be expected to do that 
And a lot of people will go along for the ride. Because we'll find out at the end of the thousand years that they were in rebellion against Him all along. But then the fourth quotation, and of the angels, He says, who makes His angels spirits and His ministers a flame of fire. In other words, He's saying, the angels are my creatures. Up to now, we've been talking about God. He says, He makes His angels ministering spirits, which you'll allude to again in verse 14, right? And then, that's the middle one, the fourth one. And there is a, a structure to these that is powerful. It'd be wonderful to show those in some sort of a visual way sometime, but I haven't taken the time to do that except in my own notes. But, but to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is how long? eternal and this quote is from Psalm 45 which many of us recognize is a psalm that also speaks about a bride right and the bridegroom and him coming to set up a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom if he's got a kingdom then he's a king isn't he You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. First John tells us that all lawlessness is sin. And Christ hates lawlessness because He's perfectly holy. He loves righteousness. And He wants His people, you and me, to grow in that too. To love righteousness more and hate wickedness more. And believe me, we live in a world where Christians don't hate wickedness enough. I don't mean wicked people. We don't hate wicked people. I mean hating wickedness starting in our own hearts and lives and then in our homes and then our computer and in our offices and amongst our children. Right? That's where it gets concrete and practical, doesn't it? Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. You look up that word gladness. I invite you to do it. Exuberant joy. I wish they'd almost translate it that way. That's the way Vine translates it. Gladness, I mean, I don't know about you, but gladness just doesn't hit it in, in our day. Maybe it did few hundred years ago. But exuberant joy, I like that one. Exultant. Glad. And that's what characterizes our Lord. Chapter 12 again. The joy set before Him. And then this quote from Psalm 102. I know, can I go a few more minutes, brethren? I know we've gone over a little, but I just want to show you something. Psalm 102. This quote here. In beginning in verse 10 down through verse 12. Oh, it's so powerful. These Psalms, you realize Psalm 102? How many of you have that on your hit list? Of, of, the, of the big ones, you know, like we've got Psalm 2 and 110 and Psalm 95 and Psalm 51, you know, and Psalm 23 is usually at the top of that list, right? The Shepherd's Psalm. I mean, the world's even using that on TV now, I notice. 
but not in a godly way, unfortunately. Psalm 102. Some Hebrew people today believe this is the psalm of the Holocaust. Now, whether back in the time of David, the Lord gave them insight on what would be happening in 1938 to 48. It's a staggering truth. But look at what he says in verse 3. For my days are consumed like smoke. Does that tell you anything about Auschwitz and Birkenbau? And my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread, and they did. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. Just look at the pictures. They were walking skeletons. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness, like an owl of the desert. I lie awake, a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. And that's what was happening. But of course we can apply this too to the sufferings of our Lord Jesus, can't we? Like we see in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, Psalm 102, the afflicted, he's the ultimate afflicted one. But it changes near the end of this psalm in verse 25, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's creator, that's what we saw earlier, right? They, the heavens and earth, will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them. I'm, I'm looking for that changed one. I'm ready for him to set off this old cloak and for the new heavens and new earth. How about you? That's what our focus and perspective needs to be increasingly as believers. But you are the same in your years have no end. Remember what he says in chapter 13? Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He's getting that from this psalm. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be before you. And then lastly, the quote from Psalm 110. You realize the Lord, Psalm 110 is how he silenced the religious leaders. You remember when they were asking him, you know what the great question was there in Mark 11:27 to 1244? Who gave you this authority to do what you're doing? Who are you? Who do you think you are? And who gave you this authority? And he gives this long answer, indirect method, you know. And he concludes it after, remember this, they ask him, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the lawyer ask him questions about the coin, about marriage and all of that. He says, okay, I have question, one question for you. Just one. That's all it took to silence him. He said, David, in Psalm 110, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. How can he be both David's Lord and David's son? Do you know the answer? The virgin birth. That's the only way that could happen, right? He could be David's offspring, not contaminated with sin, because he's also David's God and perfectly holy. In other words, that's the answer. My authority is I'm God. And you're staring right at God, looking right at Him, Pharisees. And that's the psalm He's going to build on 
later in this book, not verse 1, the one he quotes here, but verse 4, you are also a priest forever according to the order of Aaron? No, Melchizedek. Melchi, King, Zedek, righteousness, the king of righteousness. You're a king priest. Pharaoh wanted to be a king priest. The rulers of Babylon wanted to be king priests. They made themselves king priests, but they weren't a king priest. Where do you think they got the idea? They got it from Satan, who got it from God. But it was God's idea. His son is going to be a king and a priest. So I conclude with a statement from John Ellis. Young people will know who he is. He uh, sings for Tree 63. Jesus, I stood my ground when unbelief was all around. And I felt the sting rejection brings. But Jesus, I stand for you. In all this world, you're all that's true. Jesus, I stand for you. I hope you are at that place. I hope I'm at that place where we will take a stand for who our Savior is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And He loved you and me enough to give Himself for us. So, Father, we thank You, O Lord, for these marvelous, encouraging truths that we see here in this portion. And we pray, Lord, that we'll meditate on these things and You will help us reflect and remember the greatness of Your Son and, and yet He is the one who willingly purged our sins. And He's coming back for us. Help us to move on and enter into these things in a greater way and seek Your glory every day of our lives. As long as You give us the breath of life, we want to live for You. We want to stand for You. We can only do that by Your grace. We ask You to help. Thank You for all You're doing in this assembly, in this area, through the assemblies in the area, in the testimony for Your Son's name. May it be expanded, touching more lives, magnified for Jesus Christ's sake. We ask in His precious name. Amen.